Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. We continue with our ongoing Sunday morning series entitled, Listening to Jesus in Stereo, the Life of Christ from All Four Gospels. This is message number 98 in our series. I'm going to read part of the text, but the text will go on past what I'm going to read up front here. I'll read verses 15 through 22. Verse 15, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Our text this morning is actually going to span from verses 15 through 46. But right up front here in the message, I would like to give a summary and introduction to this passage. We find in these verses three inquisitions initiated by the religious leaders of Israel. We find the Pharisees in verses 15 through 22, the Sadducees in verses 23 through 33, the scribes in verses 34 through 40, and even the Herodians make an appearance in verse 16. They are intended, these conversations are, these inquisitions, if we can call them that, are intended to provoke Jesus and back him into a corner. These conversations occur just a few days before the Passover when Jesus will be crucified. Now, perhaps you're wondering what I wondered as I prepared this week. Why does Matthew record these odd conversations, especially during Passion Week? Well, it seems to me that he includes them to demonstrate that Jesus is truly the Messiah And he's being examined to certify that he is a lamb without blemish. A lamb ready to be sacrificed as the lamb of God, who John the Baptist said takes away the sin of the world. Accordingly, I have titled this message, Examining the Lamb. At the close of these three conversations today, we're going to see that Jesus asks the Pharisees some questions of his own that show without a doubt that he is the lamb without blemish who had been foretold by the prophets and he is worthy to be slain. One of the reasons that I believe this is a final exam of sorts for the lamb is the fact that all three religious groups of Israel are included. And I think that's why Matthew does this. Now, before digging into the detail of these three conversations, I first want to share with you what I believe is some important information about these three religious groups. I think it's important to understand who they were, 
what they stood for in the culture and so on. I'm going to use a quote from our friend Arlen Chitwood, which I find to be very helpful in this case, to give some description about these religious groups. I'm taking this from his book, Had Ye Believed Moses. He says, The Pharisees formed, by far, the largest religious sect in Israel. And because of their numbers, they held undisputed sway over the masses. They controlled in an undisputed manner the religious life of the nation. They were influential, to the point that even the Sadducees, the second largest religious sect in Israel, in official acts, invariably had to acquiesce to their wishes or demands in order to retain harmony with the people. So even the Sadducees, in some sense, had to submit to the Pharisees because they were so prominent and had so much pull over the religious life of the nation. He goes on to say, thus, because of their position in Israel, it was almost always the Pharisees who were seen following Christ, listening to him, observing his actions, and commenting, almost always in a negative manner, on that which was being said and done. And the Pharisees forming the central religious body in Israel to whom the Jewish people looked for direction could then easily translate their thoughts and actions to those of the people. So they had a lot of influence over the thinking of the people about the religious matters in the culture. And I would agree with what Chitwood has said. Now he's going to tell us about the Sadducees. The Sadducees are mentioned a few times, he says, with the Herodians being mentioned even less. The Sadducees, though, seeking to counter Christ, are seen several times joining themselves with the Pharisees, undoubtedly because of the influential position held by the Pharisees. And this is the only way the Herodians are seen in their attempts to counter Christ the three times that they are mentioned in the Gospel accounts. Thus it was the fundamental scholars... The interpreters and teachers of Scripture, that is the Pharisees with the scribes, who took that which Moses and the prophets had written, and through this means controlled the religious life of the nation, and occupying this position, they interpreted and taught the Scriptures in an undisputed manner, that is, undisputed in the minds of the people. Now let me summarize, in my own words, in three sentences, what Chitwood has just said. (laughs) Because that's a lot of information. Number one, the Pharisees were by far the predominant religious group in Israel in the first century. Number two, they held such influence over the people religiously that the nation believed what the Pharisees taught in large measure. And number three, for the Pharisees to be opposed to Jesus as the Messiah was a huge strike against Jesus in the minds of the people. Now I would like to add one more fact. The scribes were a subset of the Pharisees, and they're sometimes referred to as the lawyers. We see that in verse 35 in our text. I said in a previous message, and I think it's an appropriate analogy, that the Pharisees were like the pastors to Israel, And the scribes were like the Bible college professors, we might say. Maybe that'll help you put it into terms we understand nowadays. But they believed the same. The scribes and the Pharisees were on the same page doctrinally. They, we might say, they were of the same denomination. 
They were the fundamentalists of their day, characterized by a great measure of legalism and hypocrisy. Now notice in our text, the examination of the Lamb begins in verse 15 with the Pharisees plotting as to how they might entangle him. And we're told this quite plainly by Matthew, chapter 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. They don't merely want to understand Christ's position on the issues. They want to back him into a corner by his words. And Matthew tells us that's their motivation. Do you ever wonder how Matthew gets all this confidential, behind-the-scenes information as he's just reported to us here in verse 15? How does he know that the Pharisees have plotted? How does he know that they have attempted many times to trap Jesus in his words? Well, I suppose it's very possible that the Holy Spirit tells him all this when he's writing Scripture. But I tend to think that some other man told him, and of course the Holy Spirit used it in the superintending of the writing of Scripture, I think it could have been, this is just my opinion, Nicodemus, who later informs the disciples about what has happened behind the scenes. He was on the inside of everything. That man was a Pharisee, and he was part of the Sanhedrin. So I think that Nicodemus was a secret admirer of Jesus. I have no doubt that he believed on Jesus, received eternal life. I have no doubt that He wanted to follow Jesus, but for whatever constraints, he felt like he couldn't publicly and so on. But I think later on, he shares a lot of this with the disciples. That's just my opinion. That's what I think. By the way, do you know how the sect of the Pharisees began in Israel? This is interesting. Commentator Thomas Constable said, the Pharisees had come into existence during the Babylonian exile. The word Pharisee means separate one. During the exile, the Jews were in danger of assimilation by the Gentiles. The Pharisaic party was started because the Jews wanted to maintain their distinctiveness from their pagan neighbors. This was a good thing then. However, as time passed and the Jews returned to the promised land, the Pharisees' separation became too much of a good thing. And haven't we seen that in modern times as well? (laughs) It resulted in isolation as those Jews built up traditions designed not to just keep the Mosaic law, but to enforce the rabbis' interpretations of the law. The result was what we have seen in this gospel, namely Pharisaic devotion to the traditions of the elders that surpassed devotion to the word of God. Interesting. I think that helps as we approach a text of this nature today. Now notice on this occasion that the Pharisees team up with the Herodians. That's also very interesting. Verse 16, they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Let me tell you about the Herodians. They were more of a political group than a religious sect. Believe it or not, The Herodians were typically the enemies of the Pharisees because they, the Herodians, were pro-Herod, who was the puppet of Rome. And so they were supportive of the Roman government in large degree. Now, of course, the Pharisees did not like this. They viewed Rome and Rome's puppet, Herod, as an intrusion on the religious life of Israel. But the old adage rings true, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. (laughs) 
<laughs> so while the Pharisees and the Herodians are enemies, they're both enemies against Christ. So they're going to unite as friends in this case. The two enemies unite with each other to oppose that third party that they both consider their enemy, Jesus. <laughs> Well, we now come to inquisition number one, and it regards taxes. Look at their question, verse 17. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It should not surprise us that the question of the Pharisees and Herodians on this occasion touches on a governmental matter. Perhaps they think if they can get Jesus on Rome's wrong side, then Rome will deal with him. He won't be their problem anymore. In our way of speaking, this is a catch-22, a situation in which there's no right answer. Because if Jesus says, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to the Roman government, then the Pharisees and the people of Israel will be upset with him, for they hate the Romans. I'm sure you can see that end of the spectrum. But on the other hand, if he says, no, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Rome, then he's in big trouble with Rome. (laughs) So it's what we would call a catch-22. From the perspective of the Herodians, there's no right answer. Jesus is in big trouble either way he answers. Ah, they've got him in a corner, or so they think. Notice how Jesus begins his response in verse 18. He perceived their wickedness. And he said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Wow, that's a harsh answer. Why would Jesus give such a harsh answer? Well, because they have hypocritically buttered him up, despite the wicked motives in their hearts. You remember what they had said previously? Teacher, we know you are true, and teach the way of God in truth. Lie. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. In other words, we know you preach the truth, and you do not show partiality to men. If that isn't political, that's not really what they thought. It sounded really nice. But the problem is they don't believe this. They're hypocrites. They're saying one thing out of one side of their mouth and something else out of the other side of their mouth when talking to a different audience. And they're certainly thinking different things about him. Well, Jesus knows their wicked motives. And he calls them out for it. So how does he answer their trick question? We'll look at verses 19 through 21. Show me the tax money, he says. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Ah, So holding this coin in his hand, which clearly has Caesar's image stamped on it, he proclaims, render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar, and to God that which belongs to God. No catch-22 for Jesus. He gives the perfect answer. Interestingly, Jesus upholds the principle of government, even Gentile government. Just as the coin bears Caesar's image, So humans bear God's image, thus those subject to the Roman government should give Rome their due, and those subject to God should give God their due. It's not an either-or situation, it's a both-and situation. Both are right and proper. Classic answer. He's not backed into a corner, he's backed them into a corner. (laughs) Constable said, 
This was a condemnation of Israel's leaders who were not obeying God, as well as an exhortation to all the people to follow God's will. For them that involved believing in and following Jesus. So after this first round of questioning, does the Lamb of God pass inspection? (laughs) Oh, yes. When they heard these words, verse 22, they marveled and left him and went their way. He's qualified to be sacrificed as the Lamb of God. Whether the Pharisees and Herodians realize it or not, he is the perfect Lamb to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. We come now to Inquisition number 2. This one we've not read yet, but it regards resurrection. Let's read these verses, verses 23 through 28. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. (laughs) Ah, It's kind of a hyperbole, exaggeration story, if you will. If the Pharisees are the fundamentalists of their day, then the Sadducees are the liberals of their day. They reject supernatural things such as resurrection and angels. So I have this question, maybe you do too. What business then do they have in asking Jesus about what happens in the resurrection? It's a concept in which they don't even believe. See, they're hypocrites too, just like the Herodians and the Pharisees. This question plays off of a passage in the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel." This was important because Israel was a tight-knit family community and God was promoting the continuance of the nation and so on in the family names. This is called the law of leveret marriage, which encouraged the surviving widow of a deceased man to marry his widow. I say encouraged because even though it was stated in the form of a command, we know there were some exceptions to it. So it was strongly encouraged, maybe I could put it that way, It was their responsibility, and they were only to not fulfill this responsibility if they had a compelling reason. And, of course, one of those compelling reasons would be that the surviving brother was already married, (laughs) obviously. But then when, if they did carry this out, then when the first male child was born from that new union, that male child would carry on the name and legacy of the deceased man. What business do the Sadducees have to ask this question? They don't even believe in resurrection. Well, they're obviously just trying to stump Jesus. Robertson, the Greek scholar, thinks that they had used this same argument to try to stump the Pharisees regarding resurrection. Because remember, the Pharisees and Sadducees were at odds with one another, and they were always debating about things. In fact, the Apostle Paul... In the book of Acts, he used it against them one time and got them fighting with one another to get the attention off of him, which was brilliant. (laughs) 
Their story is obviously fictional, intended to unnerve Jesus, cause him to say something foolish. Maybe they're hoping he will deny the resurrection and thereby side with them over the Pharisees. He certainly won't be able to find his way out of this complicated maze that they have prepared for him verbally. Well, how does Jesus respond? Well, we read in verses 29 and 30, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Aha! Jesus confirms the truth of both resurrection and angels. Did you notice that? They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in resurrection. Jesus right here confirms the truth of both of those things, supernatural things. The things that the Sadducees deny. Constable said the Sadducees did not understand the scriptures because the scriptures taught resurrection. They did not understand God's power because they assumed that life after resurrection in heaven would be the same as it is now. They assumed that the resurrection would just involve an awakening, not a transformation. God is able to raise people to a form of existence unlike what we experience now. Yeah, glory for that. Looking forward to that day. We learn from this that those who are resurrected have a different form of existence in the next age. They do not marry or have children in like manner as the angels. Now that obviously does not apply to those who pass from one age to the next without dying. I think of people who survived the tribulation and go into the millennium. They've never been resurrected. This does not apply to them because they've never been resurrected. I also think it will apply at the end of the millennium, going into the new heaven and new earth age, those humans who had never been resurrected in their past because they had never died at that point, will also carry in as non-resurrected humans in that next age, and therefore this doesn't apply to them. At least I think that's the case. In both cases, then, they will presumably be able to marry and have children. And it's my philosophy, in fact, many Bible commentators hold to this, even those that are not of a kingdom ilk, would say that it's very likely that those people will populate and populate and populate the future earth and maybe even future universe. We don't know all the details. But this only applies to those who are resurrected. They will not marry They will not have children at that point. Their time is over for that, apparently. Now notice what Jesus adds at the end of this conversation, verses 31 and 32. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus quotes Exodus 3 and verse 6, assuring that the covenant God made to these patriarchs will be fulfilled, even though they have been long dead, because they will rise again. He is the God of the living, that is, those who will be resurrected. Constable says the logical conclusion is that if God will fulfill his promise to continue to be the God of the patriarchs, he must someday raise them from the dead. So that's what Jesus is saying to these men here, the Sadducees. Does the Lamb of God pass this inspection? (laughs) Definitely so. Look at verse 33. When the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. The Lamb is perfect, without blemish. He's ready to be sacrificed. Ah, but there's a third inquisition. 
And we call this one, Inquisition number three, regarding the great command. Let's read verses 34 through 36. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, this is a scribe, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now remember, the Sadducees have been silenced by Jesus in the former conversation, so the Pharisees take it upon themselves to put Jesus in his place and quiet him. If no one else can back them into a corner, they surely will, and they unload both barrels on him through a lawyer. They hope to get Jesus to stumble over his interpretation of the law. Now, they send in a lawyer which is like sending in the Marines, if you will, in the military. The lawyer is not only a Pharisee, he's a scribe. He's a doctor of the law. In our culture, we would call him a PhD, a professor of the university. If anyone knows the scriptures, the PhDs do, right? Not necessarily. Some of the most brilliant people in the world lack wisdom. I've been around many PhDs in my life. Some of them are brilliant men, scripturally sound, wonderful, great brothers in Christ. Some of them are believers, and they have PhDs, but you wonder how in the world they got it. (laughs) They certainly don't have wisdom. They may have knowledge, but they don't have wisdom. But Jesus is impressive. He's most wise. He has no PhD, but he has wisdom from God. Commentator R.T. France said the scene is like an ordination council where the candidate is doing so well that some of the most learned ministers ask him questions they themselves have been unable to answer in the hope of tripping him up or of finding answers. I laugh at this because I have seen people do this at ordination councils. These are the wise old men that are part of the council, and they're going to ask the guy a question he's just done so well, and you know they've been thinking about it and haven't settled it for themselves, so they want to see what the ordination candidate has to say about it. That's funny. I've seen it happen. So this lawyer asks, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Well, remember now, there are 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law. If Jesus picks one of them, undoubtedly he'll pick one of the weightier ones, but if he picks one of them, then they will accuse him of not upholding the rest of the law. Well, you picked that one, but what about this, 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 and this? (laughs) See, they've got him in a corner, or so they think. They're going to get him this time. They have a lawyer debating him. How does Jesus answer? Well, verses 37 through 40. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And to that, all I can say is masterful. Jesus quotes two passages from the Torah and gives them their answer right from the scriptures. I just think it's remarkable what Jesus says here. Now, I could preach a whole message on the content of what he says, but that's not the purpose of this message. We'll have to do that another time. But I would challenge you to meditate on loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. There's a lot to chew on there. And we've talked about that on other occasions. So we'll leave that for today to talk about the bigger picture of what's going on here. Jesus does quote two passages from the Torah. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
your soul, your strength. In Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So he just takes it right out of the scriptures, which they should have known. All the other commandments stem from these two, which are an adequate summary of all. In fact, both the law and the prophets flow right out of these two primary commands. So Jesus gives a masterful answer. As we shall see in our next message in this series, Jesus is going to use these two summary laws as the basis for condemning the Pharisees in chapter 23. We'll get to that next. But our text doesn't end. First, I want to share with you a quote by Wearsby. Jesus had now answered three difficult questions. He had dealt with the relationship between religion and government, between this life and the next life, and between God and our neighbors. These are fundamental relationships, and we cannot ignore our Lord's teachings. But there is a question more fundamental than these, and Jesus asked it of his enemies. So now the tables are going to be turned. Jesus is going to do the querying. He queries them. We find it in verses 41 and 42. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He wants the Pharisees to think about what the Old Testament says about Messiah. Who is he? Now think about it, questions about taxes and resurrection and the greatest commandment, they're not nearly as important as the key question that none of you guys have asked. Who is Messiah? What saith the scriptures? And so Jesus asks, whose son is Messiah? The Pharisees do answer correctly, but not fully. He is David's son, descendant, That's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. Now you can read that he's the son of David in 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23. But what should they have said? He is the son of God. They didn't want to say that. Now remember, Peter had said that when asked a similar question. Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right answer, Peter. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you. That came from God. Good answer, Peter. But these guys, they stay on the safe side, and they say, Well, he's the Son of David. Okay, correct as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. So Jesus backs them into a corner. Verses 43 through 45, He said to them, How then does David, in the Spirit... Call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? (laughs) Jesus points out their inconsistency. Here's what he says. If Messiah is merely the son of David, then why did David refer to him as Lord? You don't refer to your son or your descendant as Lord. That's not appropriate. Then Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm. I read one commentator who said, There was no dispute whatsoever amongst the religious leaders of Jesus' day that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm. They just didn't see it as applying to Jesus, but it was a messianic psalm. Written by King David, of course, and they would have known all that. Here's what it says, verse 1, Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. 
And so Jesus drives it home. Verse 45, If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? In other words, if David refers to Messiah as Lord, then how can Messiah merely be David's descendant? He has to be much more than that. Indeed, he is called Lord because he is the Son of God. Jesus is pointing out that humanly speaking, Messiah is David's son, but divinely speaking, he is God's son. You see his point? It's beautiful. And there's something else exciting here. Messiah was already existing when David wrote this. Thus, the Son of God was in existence, even though the Son of David was not yet in existence at the time of David's writing. How beautiful that speaks to the divinity and the humanity of Messiah. Glory, hallelujah. And there's even a reference here prophetically, I believe, to the ascension and the second coming. Messiah would sit at God's right hand while awaiting the time of his second coming to earth to destroy the enemies of God so they would be put under his footstool. (laughs) That's beautiful. All in Psalm 110, verse 1. Commentator R.T. France says that after the time of Christ, the Pharisees interpreted David's Lord as Abraham, not Messiah. They did not want to admit that Jesus was the Messiah that he was the Lord being referred to by David. How sad to think that the Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah in large part because of the Pharisees. Jesus will bring condemning words upon them in the next chapter, appropriately so. If you ever wonder why Jesus is so strong and so harsh in his condemnation of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, it's because they turned the entire nation against him. They did not accept the offer of the kingdom. Sure, there were individuals who did, and they will be rewarded for that. They will receive inheritance in the kingdom. But the nation overall did not. We close now with verse 46, the response of the crowds. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. (laughs) I like the way that's put. The questioning is now over. One commentator said, defeated in debate, the leaders withdraw from Jesus in the temple, just as Satan, also defeated by Jesus in debate, had earlier withdrawn from him. End quote. The lamb has been examined and found to be suitable for sacrifice, whether the religious leaders will admit to it or not. He is the lamb. He is worthy to be slain. Remember how meticulously they had to examine the lambs in the Old Testament to make sure they were without blemish and worthy of sacrifice? Through these questions right before his death, Jesus is shown by Matthew in his gospel to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and soon he will die, just a few days, he will die for the sins of mankind. How tragic that his people rejected him. And I say to you, one of the tragedies of modern Christianity is that in spite of the fact that many have believed on him for eternal life, so few believers have followed him as Lord of their lives. Just as the first century Jews rejected Christ's offer of kingdom inheritance, so multitudes of 21st century believers reject his same offer of kingdom inheritance. 
I have a question for you. You obviously won't be able to answer it. I can't answer it. I just want you to think about it. It's a rhetorical question. What percentage of Christians, believers, do you suppose are truly on the pathway of becoming sons to glory, to become rulers with him and his bride in that next stage? What percentage of all Christians are truly on the pathway to become sons unto glory? We can't answer that, but I'm sure it's a very small percentage. Most Christians have never even heard of these truths, much less have sought to prepare for kingdom inheritance. God have mercy on us. May we all examine the Lamb and find Him not only worthy to save us, but to sanctify us all the way to glory so that we can be His bride and co-rulers. And I say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's bow in prayer.